what do they say? The uh, majority of accidents happen like uh, five miles from your house. Majority of errors happen in two <laughs> seconds before they close the show. <laughs> See, I went to the, I had to go to the DMV because I changed states and get a new license and stuff. And that means a new picture. And for some reason, wasn't thinking like, oh, you know, it'd be good. Maybe I should groom myself before I get a picture that's going to be <laughs> never shown never. to people so now you under get... the worst circumstances. So like bar or like officer. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Welcome back to Beam Radio. I'm Stevie Nunez. And today we're going to be talking about the future of Elixir, particularly the secret global domination plan that's unfolding right before our very eyes. Before we get started, I want to introduce our panelists. We have Bruce Tate. Hi, from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And Alex Kutmos. Howdy, howdy. Sophie's off at ElixirConf. Um, Josh is probably fighting off a fire and Lars is a little under the weather. Um, so before we go on too, for, too much further, I want to hear about what's going on at Groxio. Yeah, so we are well into the Axon and Index module. And so we got to actually play the FizzBuzz game with, with, this, with this technology, which to me starts to get to the place where you could recognize what this actually does, right? So you have this behavior, this game, and what would happen if you had to have a computer stand in for one of the players? And how would you train that computer to to make the appropriate sounds and, and say the appropriate words, right? And uh, so you could do that by actually writing the rules or you could do that using statistics and calculus um, or a framework that used statistics and calculus that took this generic parameterized function and tuned it to the right set of parameters to actually play FISBA. So that's always an exciting moment for me. So cool. Yeah, I've been going through uh, some of the modules and started doing some of the FluxML stuff, now looking at some of the NX stuff, and it's starting to sink in. It's, start, it's starting to make its way through my thick, thick skull. So I'll, uh, I'll, keep, I'll keep at it. I'm excited you're still making, you're, you're working on that. Yeah, it's been so much fun to actually, uh, I, I was actually giving one of the Groxio monthlies, which now are turning into more like quarterlies. Isn't that how it always, always happens? But so I looked up and I see a Sean on the list. There was maybe 40 something people. And so Sean, um, Sean Moriarty was there, um, who's actually probably the lead on this project. And, um, you know, I was able to get more words out. So I was pretty excited about that with the, with the founder looking on and me and my kind of naive understanding. Um, but it's been a blast to work on and see how quickly this, this, project is capturing the imagination of the Elixir community. Before we get into too many spoilers into the future and secret global domination plan of Elixir, I'll cut you off right there. Um, we like to have a segment called the process mailbox, where if you send us a question and we choose your question, we send you a shirt uh, to participate. Make sure you get us on Twitter, uh, send a message to us on Twitter with your question at, at beamradio one with the hashtag process mailbox. And again, we picked your question, you get a shirt. Today's question comes from Bill Tihan, Tihan. Um, and he, this comes from listening to the uh, Elixir design uh, episode. I believe he's referencing the Chris Keithley episode. Um, the question's around CRC. The question goes, it seems object code could in many cases do the same as CRC. 
your constructor is sort of like your class data initializer, your reducers using East oriented code where code returns self at every uh, method invocation and converters, essentially a return value or external usage. Um, is this reasonable to follow these patterns in OO or is it an abuse in OO? Yeah, so I think that what's what's pretty exciting is that, you know, so, oh, by the way, hi, Bill. Bill has been a longtime listener of, of this show. And he's also uh, been a longtime customer of Groxio. He's got the programmer passport. He comes to the trainings when, when we have new ones. And awesome. so we've been, we've talked CRC in a classroom setting and um, it's really been fun to kind of see to see him go from an object-oriented mindset into a functional one. So, and you can already tell that he's thinking about things in the right way. And yes, this is exactly the kind of pattern that you would see, especially in language like Smalltalk, where it's customary to return self and kind of chain some of these things together. But so what I would say is normally in an object-oriented system, most of what you're trying to do is a side effect, right? So mostly you, you, for example, if you're turning a robot and always just return the robot, what happens with Elixir is that you return a new copy of the robot facing the direction that, that you wanna face, right? And in an object-oriented system, you set a property and then return the, uh, whatever the, you know, the canonical um, pointer to the object is. Um, so it's, Basically, it's encoding mutability. So I would say that that's primarily primarily the difference. You go from a place where you're working on a series of transformations in a functional language to um, to a place in an object-oriented language where you are encoding this mutability um, and and probably wrapping other side effects as well. I like that. Essentially, hiding the mutability behind behind the interface. In the most dangerous way possible, <laughs> right? And of course, as as a person, as you know, fans of Elixir, folks who've written Elixir, the, the thing you're hearing is like in my head, I'm screaming like, "Well, concurrency is a problem, isn't it? What if you, you know, get into um, multiple processes mutating the same state? What happens there? Well, kind of a solved problem in Elixir is you get the new data, and one of them is, you know, um, they're two different copies, but now you wind up in weird race condition land. Um, but that said, I mean, regarding this CRC, like, I think that this is sort of part of, I see CRC as like a, a part of a bigger way of designing Elixir systems, shameless plug for you, Bruce. Um, but the idea that you have the CRC, this functional core, and then you have like your boundary layer and you have, um, you know, your lifecycle management sort of like you have these tiers of building an application and you can do something like that in OO. In fact, Gary Bernhardt talks a lot about this, where he talks about, functional core imperative shell, right? If anyone's seen that stuff where you have um, essentially the idea of writing functional code in an object-oriented language with immutable data so that it's easier to reason about, it's more predictable, but then you wrap it in something that is that next layer, which we're gonna call like our boundaries, which is our gen servers or our live views. Oh, camel, right? Right. Yeah, and, and I love the way that you kind of that you kind of laid that out. And so the thing that I love about CRC is this is a pattern that you typically see in an object-oriented language, right? And so what you'll see often is when an object-oriented developer comes into the Elixir community, you essentially say, okay, don't do that. You know, you've got these, you've got this, 
this behavior and this, this data, package them together, don't do that. You've got this mutability, don't do that. You've got this inheritance, don't do that. And then, so you basically strip all of their organizational tools away and then you say, go, <laughs> right? And, and the, the programmer says, go where? And they basically lock up and then they wind up coding things like um, inheritance structures and dependency injection and object-oriented languages to go back to where they were, right? So what this does instead is this says, okay, this is what the glue looks like, CRC. You can be confident in this glue. And this is what it looks like in the, in the you said imperatives, the, the functional core layers, which is kind of the, um, the data functions test. And then right. this is what it looks like in the boundary layer, which is more of a width type composition. And this is more of what it looks like in the API system. So it's a way that I love to think about teaching Elixir. And that kind of unlocked the, uh, the, the Gracio classes when, when we started talking about this. So thanks for the question, Bill. It's, it's a marvelous one. You're thinking about exactly the right things. Awesome. Let's get this man a shirt. He's earned it. Great question. Maybe two. Maybe two. That's right. Uh, so on to today's topic. So uh, it kind of came to me the other day that Elixir's got a lot of stuff going on right now in a lot of different, you know, a lot of different spaces, right? Like you look at some languages where like they're mostly known for a specific thing or maybe two things. You think Ruby, well, that's Rails, right? Yes, there are other things, but the thing it's known for is mostly Rails. Python has a second life as a data science language and has a, a website as well, some light scripting. And I kind of wanted to take a minute with with the great panelists of Beam Radio and just sort of gather around the crystal ball and try to figure out what's happening, what's going on in the next few years when the plan, master plan unfolds, what's the world gonna look like? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, now you bring up a question. Like Elixir definitely has its hands in a lot of domains. And I think it's doing really well in, in uh, you know, if not all, definitely most of those domains, right? Like Phoenix is just, you know, kicking butt on the website of things. Uh, you know, Live View is, is phenomenal. Uh, Phoenix is just rock solid. I actually just recently updated a, uh, a Live View project to uh, the latest Live View release. And literally within five minutes, I was up and running. I thought it was gonna be a painful process of, of upgrading and, and leveraging some of these new uh, uh, macros in, in Live View, but that was not the case. I was done in five minutes and then my app was way faster. And then uh, what is the, what's the Chrome um, performance testing thing? Lighthouse. Lighthouse is like, boom, 97 across the board. And I was happy. But um, yeah, so, so that's, you know, that's the website of things. Then we have, you know, this, this, this relatively new machine learning side of things. We have, you know, NX and Axon. Uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, NERVs, which, you know, there's some, some great literature being published about NERVs now. Uh, so, yeah, Elixir definitely has its hands on a lot of things. I think it, I think it's doing very, very well at uh, at, at most of those things. Uh, I mean, Nerves is rock solid. Uh, Phoenix is rock solid. I haven't, I haven't played around with uh, the you know the machine learning side of things. So maybe you know Bruce can chime in there. But uh, now it seems like anywhere that Elixir goes and where the beam goes, it's doing a good job. And I think that's very much due to the fact that uh, you know the abstractions are right, and we've we've definitely talked about this in the past, but the abstractions are right, the foundation is right, and uh, most people aren't fighting with the tooling and the language and the runtime in order to achieve these, these amazing goals. 
And I would add Livebook. I really think that Livebook has a lot to say about smart documentation, about learning, about collecting thoughts, about basically it's this packaging of documentation and code, which is all what we were looking for so many years when we were when we were blogging, right? And so, I mean, I do think that there's some work to be done in the Livebook space, but in fairness, that's not an Elixir problem. That's with all of these Livebook type systems, the, the same, the one in Python, the one in Julian, and on and on and on, right? It's how do you do this in a secure way? But I think that that you're very much right that there are hands in a lot of pots, but What's cool to me is that we're starting to see a lot of cross-pollination that we did not expect across the projects, right? So Alex, you know, I basically gave you some of the content for the Groxio um, nerves module and said that this would be a good basis for a book. And you took the challenge up and essentially took that in your own direction and wrapped that up with telemetry. And that was really, really cool. Um, and so I think to see those things put together is, is pretty awesome. And then you see Frank coming out with a note with a notebook that would allow you to work with the sensors and the system that you built, right? So wouldn't it be cool if when you started the project in the first place, you just load this, this predetermined live book and then you start interacting with the sensor and then you say, oh, I can see what this thing does. That's so we're starting to see these boundaries crossed that we didn't even know could be crossed, right? We're getting this synergy. And that, that to me says that we've been patient with the abstractions. The abstractions are right and they're working. And now we're starting to get the combined impact of, of all these systems working together. Yeah, that's a really good point that um, it, it seems like a lot of these projects kind of started on their own path. And now they've kind of crossed and uh, now there's some cross-pollination, like you said. That's that's a really, really interesting point. Uh, and yeah, I think I think that gets down to, you know, the readability of the language. It's really easy to pick up somebody else's library and understand how it works and contribute back. And uh, you know, the fact that it's it's functional by nature, right? We're not we're not worried about any of this uh, you know data hiding nonsense and like oh I really wish I could interface with this thing but I can't because it's a private uh, it's a private field on this class. You know, oh, woe is me, I can't do anything. So I think I think this really gets down to yeah, the developer experience and the and the language and the you know the, the fundamentals. Yeah, really, really well said. Really well said. So I'm wondering what is what is so I want to kind of like go through each one of these big pillars. Because again, I do think that we have very distinct domains where we're trying to uh, essentially take over, right? Let's not be shy about it, right? We want domination, we want this thing to be what everyone's writing. Um, what does live view look like when it's, I'll say, the de facto way of writing applications? Like, what, is it, what does that world look like? Fast development, everyone's happy, everyone goes home on time, no bugs, obviously. So I wanna, I wanna back this up into the original abstraction. That's not a new abstraction to be fair, right? It's, it's essentially, you have data, so good functional developers start with the right data. So you have this data that represents a lot of you, right? That's, that's a, a socket, right? And there's two dimensions that are completely independent, right? So how do you update this data 
based on events. And then what form does that socket take when you put it on the browser, right? So said another way, what, what data do you put in the socket? Mount, how do you show it to the user? Render, how do you change it? Handle, right? So that's prepare to work, mount, do your work, handle, show your work, render. And that's easy to teach, it's easy to understand, and it's turtles all the way down. Love that. And I think that, that that speaks to why, kind of to the story that Alex told about the sort of um, upgrade path and uh, sort of the world that we find ourselves in today is that we're so focused on building things based off of these fundamentals, these good paths that we are just leveraging a lot of the old ways of doing things, the right ways of doing things. Um, so yeah, one thing I can sort of see happening sort of on the way to global domination is that it's easier to pick up. It's easier to pick up. You know, there's a chicken and the egg thing with sort of programming languages in general, which is um, if you, it's fine if it's easy to learn, but if no one's using it, who cares? So I think that there's this like big, nice balance of um, obviously in working on adoption. So let's assume adoption is there and then it's easier to pick up because you're focused on one, pro, you know, straightforward, repeatable programming model, whether you're doing a command line application or you're doing, um, you know, uh, the engine for a game or you're doing a live view, uh, it's all sort of the same fundamental uh, patterns. You're following CRC, you're following how you break up data, how you break up uh, and handle events to update that data. So yeah, I think, I think that one of the things that I see happening sort of in the future is that again, faster adoption of, of this pattern. I think it is a pretty easy pattern to pick up um, and move forward with. Um, I wanted to pick sort of like your brains about this though. Um, do we consider building applications in live view a form of vendor lock-in? And if so, how do we sort of feel about that? How do we think people will perceive something like that? Yeah, so I think about this a lot and I, I think it's, so essentially at some point in a programming language's life or a programming environment's life, I, I would say that Phoenix is somewhere between a library and a framework, probably. You come to a point where, where the, the tools that you use to, to capture concepts aren't quite enough, right? And in this case, the, the problems that, that Phoenix needs to solve, some of them live on the browser, which Phoenix desperately needs to, to integrate with, right? And some of them live on the server. So bridging that is this complex infrastructure. There's a complex infrastructure between them, right? right? And we've seen this before, right? A good example was in the Java programming language when inheritance wasn't enough anymore. And it was clear that inheritance wasn't enough anymore. So we started seeing these things called dependency injection containers, right? We tried to invert the control. And what we saw is these very low level extensions to the Java programming language that weren't object oriented anymore. It was called aspect oriented programming or things like that. And that's a little bit of what we're seeing here, right? So one of the things that's powerful about Elixir and Phoenix is that it's very, very explicit. You can't see functions in 
the path. I mean, you can see every single function in the path from an endpoint to the routes to right. the to the function to the module that you're building it itself, whether you're building a channel or a live view or a controller, all the functions all the way down are explicit. Even when you have this these magic things happening, like you're starting up and you, you forgot to run your migration and you see a button on the screen. You can put your finger on exactly the line of code where that happens by just knowing that the endpoint is a pipeline of plugs. And a plug is just a function with, with a run and, and some, some ability to halt and, and you know, wrap that with arguments. But, but yeah, so this is something different though. This is say there's a bit of hidden magic in JavaScript that reaches down to the client that we don't fully understand. And when that breaks, it's complicated. And that's that's a that's a bit of a scary thing. Hmm. That's that's but but yeah, I mean you said it better than I did that there is there are some places in here where we are stepping beyond Elixir. And when we get to index, we'll have some of the same conversations, I believe. For sure. I mean, I, I think to some extent vendor lock-in is like it's it's unavoidable, right? Like if you write this giant uh, backend and you know Python or Ruby. You know, at some point you're kind of locked into that technology because we all know how rewrites go; they don't go very well, right? But um, I would argue that, like, let's say you reach, you know, a point where LiveView just isn't enough anymore, and you need to switch to like some sort of spa framework, right? Like, let's say you need to make a PWA, you need offline support. Okay, you've you've gone outside the realm of what LiveView will will handle for you at the moment. Maybe these things are coming, you know, in the the, the one the uh, 017 announcement. We have we have week. the crystal ball. We have the crystal yeah. ball. You know, I think I see something about PWAs and offline, it, but I'm not it sure. It could be. It could be. Well, as soon as iOS supports PWAs, don't um, kill me, Chris. <laughs> But uh, I mean, as, as far as like a migration path is concerned, I think I think LiveView is actually one of the easiest things to to migrate off of, right? You're just you're just using you know raw CSS, you're just using raw HTML, none of this you know CSS and JS nonsense. You you could look at everything. It's it's you know it's, it's using the fundamental tools of the browser. Not a lot of, a lot of, not a lot of magic happening there. So if you want to switch to React or Vue, you effectively copy and paste those uh, you know those um, render templates, throw them into, you know, JSX or, you know, your view files, and then you start uh, rewriting a little bit from there. So I think in terms of migration paths, I don't think it gets any easier, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you are using framework specific calls and tooling. So there, there is some element of, of lock in there. Yeah. And, and I think that the, the big trade-off is always that like at some point I'm choosing to write this in language X is, is writing in language X and this, uh, with this framework worth the benefits that I'm getting. Um, and I think that, you know, every day we're seeing more and more that the ease of use and development with LiveView and there's the joy of writing something in LiveView is worth a lot. Um, plus all the great primitives that we have in Elixir that make it so you have that long-term maintainability and then you can grow the software if you, uh, you know, follow the community's best practices. Um, all right, so prediction from the crystal ball, LiveView will dominate the world. If you write an app that's not LiveView, people will say, wow, you like writing old things that don't make sense. That's that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I, I'm definitely seeing it take over <laughs> some aspect of the market where everybody just reached for an SPA, even though everybody, everybody knew it was overkill. Right. 
to reach for an SPA, but they reached for it anyways because it was either that or like, I don't know, jQuery. There's no middle ground. I feel like uh, Live View is a very, very large middle ground now where it's like you need some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of dynamic aspects to the, you know, to the page. Maybe you need some, um, you know, some real-time functionality, but you don't need this giant overhead of, you know, uh, an SPA type framework. So I think that we now have a middle ground and it's very, very, you know, a very large field. I agree. And I would say that the, the battle between proprietary and open is as old as technology. The market leader always wants to be proprietary. Everybody chasing always wants to be open. But we're starting to see a new version of proprietary. It's locked in because it's beautiful. And I love it. Cool. So now, so we've got, we've got domination in the web space. Go team. Uh, I want to talk about nerves and where we see nerves going, where it is. I'm really interested to hear from you too, Alex, considering you just wrote the, this book and had an experience, had an opportunity to go from nerves noob to, you know, nerves master as, as, you know, a resident nerves expert now. Um, where do you sort of see that, you know, exploding again we can be very permissive and say it's gonna it's gonna dominate what space what space is it gonna take over from existing players um and yeah where is it yeah where where does it shine first of all thank you and you flatter me i don't i don't i do not consider myself a nerves expert but uh i i appreciate that the book came across that way so that's that's a plus <laughs> but uh in all seriousness i, I really see nerves taking off in the IOT space. It was, I mean, the book is less than 100 pages, but within that 100 pages, you're able to build a, uh, you know, an embedded Elixir app. You're able to build a Phoenix backend to collect, uh, you know, time series data, and then you're also able to plot all that data in Grafana, all within, you know, less than 100 pages, which is, which I, I think speaks to the productivity of uh, Elixir and of uh, the Nerves framework. Right? You burn your initial firmware onto the SD card. You SSH into it and you're off to the races, right? You install a couple of, uh, of um, you know, packages and you can immediately start reading off of the, uh, the weather sensors via I2C. So I really think that when it comes time for, you need, like, you need a product out within a couple months, right? Like, I don't think you could beat the productivity of nerves. Uh, like, I don't see it taking over the space where you're making like, you know, custom hardware that needs to be super, super efficient because it's running on a really, really, really teeny tiny battery. Like, I, I don't think that's, that's nerves is, is uh, its target uh, uh, marketplace. But in terms of, you know, IoT devices that maybe are using like GPS sensors and have a, uh, um, you know, LTE connectivity, stuff like that, I, I really see it as being a... Uh, like, like an industry leader in that, in that aspect. I think I agree mostly with you, Alex. So I believe that there's a sweet spot for nerves that will grow with Livebook. Right now, the Achilles heel of nerves is that you have to learn a cross section of so many new things to step away from the traditional languages of doing embedded systems of the, I mean, even Python, but going all the way back to C with serious serious development or even Java, because you have to learn the programming paradigm, you have to learn new programming language, you have to learn the concurrency. But that said, there's this growing, this growing complexity in 
the complexity of microchips, right? And that's happening with increasing regularity. Would you rather be building a system that cuts across networking and time, which isn't easy with embedded systems and, and integrating with sensors and integrating with other parts of the real world and doing that in a way that's fault tolerant and resilient and see or elixir. And I think that that's, that's really an easy question to answer. And so right now we're starting to talk about applications like electric cars or thermostats that are very obvious targets for things like elixir. But look at where things are going. As devices get smarter, then they're gonna to need to be fault tolerant and they're also going to need to be highly concurrent because we're going to be training models and things like that. And there, it's so the hard problems are going to get a whole lot easier with Elixir, even though the easy problems are a little bit harder. So I really think that there's a tremendous opportunity for this to grow. And so one of the things I'd like to watch is how is the leadership doing? And Frank Hunleth is just an absolute, just absolute, absolute gem of a leader. He's, he's a good man who understands how, how, to, how to effectively get other people involved in, in really um, pretty exciting ways in, in, the, um, in the nervous community. So we've just seen the first nurse conference. I think it's the first nurse conference that, that went down earlier this week as, as we're recording this. I think that that bodes really, really well for what, where NERVS is growing and getting the growth in leadership that NERVS needs to, to take the next step. I, was like, I, I definitely want to echo that sentiment, uh, Bruce. Frank and, um, um, you know, Frank and everyone in the, the NERVS leadership is really, really doing a phenomenal job with, with uh, shepherding the project and, uh, and really driving it forwards. So I, yeah, I definitely want, to, definitely want to echo that sentiment. And I think that the idea that you could step into without having nervous experience, you could step in and write a, not just a credible book, but an excellent book on that kind of marries the, the concepts of software design and, and nerves is, is really, it's, it's a, a, a very good indicator of where the community can go. And the idea that, that we now have this book series with one book and soon to be two and, and you know, several others in progress um, and by the way, audience, if, if you're if you're interested in writing a a book about one project that teaches one software concept in I don't know around 80 pages, 80 you know 70 90 pages, come talk to us. We'd we'd love to have you writing about this. And and if you need a little bit more lesser experience, we can pair you with somebody that can do that. If you need a little bit more nerves experience, we can pair you with somebody to do that. And we can help you with the reviewers to to actually get that work done. But um, I, I'm I really think Alex that your work is is a great indicator of where uh, nerves can go. Yeah, I think one of the things that is really stands out to me about um, the where nerves sort of sits and sort of what will make it explode in I guess popularity and usefulness is something that you both touched on, which is it's 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 potions all the way down. Yeah. Right. So you've got easy access to your web framework. You've got access to the beam, right? We're at a point where 
you know, if we build something on a super teeny tiny Raspberry Pi, it's still incredibly powerful, like relative to like what the what these machines can run. Um, Phoenix runs great on it, and then you have the um, you know interfacing with your sensors. Like it just it becomes this thing that it brings in so many of the tech proven tried and true technologies that we do have on the website, new stuff like LiveBook and LiveView, and then marries that with the um, with the outside world and sensors. I think it's really attractive to developers who are sort of ideating on, well, if, so you're telling me if I'd learn just enough nerves to, to do this, I can use all of my sort of Phoenix know-how and build something really cool and interesting. And that's that's part of it as well, that I don't have to build my drivers in C and then I have to bring in another library to, to do either a web server in C. Don't. Um, like I think that's a really, really compelling argument for what I think is gonna make nerves explode. Um, I think we touched on it earlier with the fact that Livebook is sort of like an unexpected hero in this whole thing where, you know, Frank put together a Livebook where you can, you know, interact with it in a new and interesting way um, but through Livebook. So uh, prediction, all IoT devices will be built in nerves. And if you're not, people will say, what are you doing? Building it the old way. What's wrong with you? Why don't you, why do you like pain and suffering? That's what we're going to get. I'm good with world domination. Yeah, yeah. Or an increased slice that's... of the world, let's say. Increased slice. No, no, I'm going all the way. I'm going all the way. Um, the whole enchilada is a used <laughs> to say in Texas. One thing I will add, and maybe this is kind of a cop out, because I'll use a similar answer to, uh, that I did for LiveView. I feel like I feel like ner uh, Nerves really gives you that large middle ground again, right? Like if you need something purpose built, like free toss, right? That's going to be a lot of, you know, that's a lot of time. You're investing a lot of R and D into building like your custom thing with free, uh, you know, free R toss. But Nerves is super capable. And again, if you don't need something purpose-built and you just need high velocity and something that works really, really well, right? That's the, you know, that's the niche of, uh, of, of nerves, I feel. So large middle ground again. <laughs> yep, yep. With, with great library support to, that already connects to the most important standards. What, what was the interface that you used to talk to the sensors? Uh, I2C. Yeah, I2C. And, you know, there are... There's another interface that, that we use to talk to the, you know, built this binary clock and Frank and I are, are publishing this book pretty soon, but we use the SPI interface. Um, so it's a SPI interface and, you know, you could use one, you know, one driver or multiple drivers, you can chain them together and it's, it's a pretty cool system. Awesome. I want to talk about a, a big one. One that I think is, um, I'm having a hard time reading the impact, but I feel it's going to be big. And that's Electra moving into the machine learning space. Um, so Bruce, you've been doing a ton of work on, on this. You were doing a ton of work on the Julia side as well. So I'm really, really interested to hear your perspective on where does Elixir excel? You know, it's a tool that was built definitely for a different reason, right? Running on the beam, we're talking telecom systems, we're talking distributed systems. And now we've added this new facet to the language. Um, where you know, how's it doing and what's its path to global domination to keep it in theme? So how's it's doing is, is really easy because so much is happening so quickly in this ecosystem. It's, it just absolutely blows me away. Every, every couple of days, I see just a flurry of new commits by Sean and, and with, with Jose looking his shoulder over his shoulder and kind of um, looking over these commits and making 
the, the key observations that make sure that it's idiomatic elixir and that, that it's using macros in the right way. And so to see the progress in, in the NX and Axon projects proper is exciting. And then to see all the growth in all the areas around that, like, like we already have a, a graphing and charting library, which is just a wrapper of one that's available and JavaScript, we already have this, this live book library and you know, on and on and on. And, and to, to build this, this live book library, there's a component library that kind of goes with that. That's, you know, I was able to kind of drop in some with, with, I don't know, a couple of dozen lines of code, I was able to drop in some, um, some SVG little graphics in the live book that that it probably took me like 20 lines of code and, and about a half hour to kind of figure out how to do that. That was super exciting. But so, so the progress of the overall project was strong. I do think that there's a ton of work to do. So to give you a sense of where the, the market in general is, there are specific vendors that do numerical processing very well. And some of them are proprietary and some of them are open. You know, for example, there's there's R and Mat, MATLAB or Mat, <laughs> MATLAB. <laughs> so there, there are these vendors that where it's easy to do the numerical analysis types of statistics, but it's harder to do the general pur purpose programming. And then there are languages like Python where it's easy to do the general purpose programming and it's hard to do the really specific kind of statistic-y stuff that you really need in, in the data science world. But they've added a lot of support like things like the Jupyter Notebook, which is a concept that kind of the Elixir and Julia Notebooks are based on. But then there's, there's a new class of hybrid implementations. And, and the first one that I saw that I really, really loved and still love a lot is the Julia language. So I would say that the Julia language is, is somebody I'm really, really watching in this space simply because of the backing of MIT and the machine learning community and, and the recent spinoff of, of the Julia com computing uh, the, the company to basically kind of shepherd the language. I think that this is actually a great, great move. And there are all kinds of places where, where we could see some commercial success in a, in a relatively early, you know, the, the, these, these early commercial successes and pharmaceuticals and, and astronomy and things like that. But then there's languages like Elixir. And Elixir has to get an awful lot right to get a critical mass. And the thing that I see Elixir doing well is building very clean abstractions and wrappers around systems that already exist. And where they don't exist, building very clean implementations that, that have the right abstractions. So an example of, of wrapping things that do exist there's the idea of a tensor, right? So you could try to build a tensor with a, with a functional data structure, things like lists and maps, and, but you would get something that's, 
expensive, super expensive to mutate and probably expensive to store. And you'd have a tough time uh, building all the type support for all those things that, that you'd need to kind of pull that off. So instead, you wrap tensors in, in a way that, that they're actually backed through other programming languages and other compiler support. And so I think that that's pretty cool. I also think that, that you see projects that are, that are kind of started from scratch, like Livebook, that didn't try to wrap the existing uh, notebook structures. And they were you know, very quick because they're taking advantage of systems like LiveView that have the, the core technology in them. So I would divide the landscape into four different areas, right? The strong machine, uh, machine learning statistical languages like, like R and, and things like it. Um, the strong general purpose languages that have good machine learning tooling like Python, but lack core elements to make that successful. The languages that try to bridge those two communities, specifically the Julia language, and the languages that add machine learning after the fact to fill a great hole the way Elixir did. So I think that that's what, so Elixir is not looking for world domination here. Elixir is working, is looking to credit for credibility here. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, it does. Um, I, I'd love the idea of, of sort of like it starting to dip its toes into, into this space and sort of like being set up to really explode in popularity. Yeah, yeah, and, and doing that by building the right abstractions where they don't exist and wrapping, uh, building clean, clean abstractions that wrap existing systems where they do exist, right? Um, I, I love that. So Jose and Sean are very good at know, knowing which notes to play and which notes not to play. And I think it really speaks to the extensibility of the runtime in the language that we're able to, you know, utilize these these third party and even you know cross language uh, toolings and it it like it feels native to uh, to elixir and the beam there's not a lot of of pain and frustration and kind of reaching for these external tools and, and and using them when necessary macros meet nips right yeah amazing combination awesome any other predictions that you have for the next you know crystal ball gazing and that comes to mind that we haven't discussed yet that you have the prediction so, business is dangerous, I understand. <laughs> so I do see I do see Elixir accelerating in popularity, not from any one of these individual pieces, but because well, we've we've closed a pretty gaping hole with machine learning. We're starting to see a good cross-pollination across projects and and Elixir is is so good at one dimension of a lot of problems right like for example data movement and data processing you have you have broadway to move it around you have live view to present it you have machine learning to make decisions based on it you have nerves to collect it so you know you could see you could see people that really need to great access to data to be able to to actually do something pretty interesting with it from a lot of different dimensions. And, and it's not perfect at everything, but it's great at most of it. 
I would also add that we now have uh, stream support in RabbitMQ, which is another you know uh, Beam ecosystem tool. So now we have you know a ridiculously fast uh, you know message queue uh, to lean uh, to reach for. We have streaming support, so we no longer have to reach for Kafka, which is you know a godsend for some of us. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think I think the the Beam ecosystem has a whole lot to offer, and uh, I mean at, at this point it should really be you know, taken seriously and, and considered for any production workload, I feel. I'm going to also step up and say, I really believe that LiveView is probably a big part of where we're going forward in the web and that the final form of LiveView might not be exactly where we are. It might take some other form, some other um, component rendering. And, and you're starting to see this, like some of the ideas in LiveView coming out in LiveBook, right? So I could easily see additional programming models emerging at live out of live view that, that we don't see. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree, especially since we're still pre 1.0. Uh, I think there's still a chance that the, that the library changes a little bit. Um, yeah, but one thing I definitely want to add is, and kind of this goes back to what you were saying initially, Bruce, where a lot of these technologies are tying, you know, are, are coming together and, and they're able to lean on each other. Um, Live View and NERS has been has been a great experience. Uh, I actually had a a client, a consulting client, a little while ago. I won't give away any of the details, but effectively there was a you know, um, a Raspberry Pi running uh, NERVs, and it was using uh, Live View, and we were controlling the hardware all through Live View. You know, in the you know this this Raspberry Pi was running some workflows, and all that stuff was going through you know PubSub on this one uh, on this one little NERVs device, all populating Live uh, Live View dashboards. And it was by far one of the easiest things I've ever put together in terms of you know how complex the problem was, and how e like how easy the implementation came out in the end. Like it was it was it was amazing to see that all come together, and this is all from just you know one developer, just me as a consultant fixing it. And I was like I felt like I was doing the work of an entire team, and that was only because I was able to lean on all these amazing libraries and and frameworks that we have at our disposal. Awesome, and my and my prediction, complete global domination. All, all your device, you'll have hundreds of devices at home running nerves uh, with interfaces serving live views. Um, you'll have uh, exportable live books that you can share about the state of all of your devices. Electricity usage is gonna be madness. Um, and you'll be using some, uh, some of the NX and Axon machine learning work to you know, make sure that you're, they're actually running at optimal electrical levels. And it's gonna be a whole thing. Your whole house is going to be fault tolerant, concurrent. It's going to be amazing. So that's my uh, that's my my prediction. Complete global domination. Uh, I want to thank our sponsor Groxio uh, again for sponsoring the show. Groxio Career Fuel for Programmers. That was fun. That was really fun. How does the saying go? Every like uh, every <laughs> decently complex system eventually has like a half baked version of OCP. Half baked right. version of of Erlang. Yeah. Yeah, man, I love that that the practical, I guess like the pragmatic approach of just like do what do what you're good at, and then kind yeah. of like ferry off what you're presently not good at or what you have no interest in being good at, right? I think that there's there's a lot of part of OTP. A lot is in that lifecycle management, that isolation, that fault tolerance, and if it's like you do this other part because it's not what I my core function. It's not worth extending the language that far to do this thing. So I, and that's actually yeah. one of the things I appreciate most about. You know, Elixir or Lang the Beam in general. It it like it it doesn't try to please every single use case. It's like no, I'm really good at these things, and I'll like that's my my core competency, 
and I'll give you the escape hatches you need. Yeah, that's that's as far as I'll go, because a lot like a lot of these other languages try to become like the do everything language, and it just becomes a disaster. 